Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another bonus episode made possible by the generosity of my patrons over on patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thanks to their support, everyone gets to enjoy the additional episode I put out each and every month. This time we're looking at Interstellar Terror by John E. Kirk, one of my patrons who was kind enough to send me a digital copy of his game book. And boy, is it a monster. I don't think I'm going to be able to do more than scratch the surface in this recorded playthrough, but I'll do my best to give you a flavour of it. Now, I'm a big supporter of amateur creativity, perhaps unsurprisingly for a man with a podcast. If you do something for the sheer joy of it, without expectation of significant financial reward, that makes you a hero to me. I'm an amateur creator, I've never worked for a professional design studio, and while I have done odd bits of paid writing over the years, I've never earned anything approaching a salary from my work. I've written multiple novels and about 100 short stories, none of which have found a publisher, and the money I currently get from my wonderful patrons makes this podcast the single most financially successful creative activity I've ever achieved. So whether it's people posting their artwork on DeviantArt, community members creating additional rules for their favourite board games, writers putting up fanfic or modders creating new levels for old video games, I'm just a massive fan of that kind of non-professional creative endeavours. And there's fewer barriers to creativity than ever in this age of technology. And I think that's one of the very best things about this otherwise somewhat bleak epoch in the history of human endeavour. Additionally, the distinction between amateur and professional creator has never been more porous. The existence of professional YouTubers and SoundCloud rap as a subgenre indicate how effectively some people have been able to turn their hobby into a viable source of income. In an age where vastly increased choice has led to a paradoxical narrowing of mainstream entertainment, the role of the amateur creator is even more vital than it ever has been. Marvel movies and live-action remakes of their old animated features are kind of Disney's bread and butter, and Call of Duty is such a successful gaming franchise that it's become a significant sticking point in Microsoft's plan to purchase Activision Blizzard. And I think that all of us amateur creators are engaged in a form of protest against the homogenization of cultural life, and I consider that work to be extremely important. All of which is to say that as an amateur creator, I will always salute the work of other amateur creators, even if I don't care for it, so long as they're putting something out into the world. If you've been thinking of trying your hand at any kind of creativity, I strongly urge you to give it a go. Even if you're not happy with the results, you've still created something that didn't exist before, and that is awesome. No matter how bad it turns out, the chances are it's still going to be better than the Green Lantern movie. Does anyone remember the Green Lantern movie? I sincerely hope not. So I am genuinely delighted to be able to feature a game book written by someone outside of a traditional publishing environment. And with that slightly pretentious introduction out of the way, 
let's have a look at the rules for Interstellar Terror. Interstellar Terror describes itself as a game novel rather than an adventure game book, which kind of reminds me of some of the older books we've come across where the nomenclature of the format hadn't been fully settled on yet. It also scores big points in the rules section by explicitly describing them as optional. Always give the player permission to do things that they're going to do anyway. That is a good rule to adopt in pretty much any game. The rules section is quite long, but that's more because the author has provided genuinely exhaustive examples of how the various systems work. I would say that maybe he's erred a little bit too much on the side of excess, but at the same time, I'd rather have too many worked examples of the rules uh, than too few, so it falls on the right side of that divide. The rules all make sense, but the prose has a bit of a tendency to express concepts in a slightly roundabout way. In general, when writing rules text, it's useful to try and whittle the words down to the bare minimum necessary to express them. Again, in this case, it's not a problem because the rules themselves make sense, but it might have benefited from a few more drafts, not least because writing rules is hard and is something that I myself know I need to get better at. We've got some attributes. We've got attack, skill, strength and fortune. They're all fairly self-explanatory. Attack for attacking things is subdivided into your starting attack and your present attack and your present laser attack. Starting attack is your initial ability. It begins at five. Present attack represents your current ability as modified by any weapons you might come across. And present laser attack, which begins at zero, reflects your ability to fight with a laser sword. So we'll need to find a laser sword to begin raising this number. And I really hope we do find a laser sword because laser swords are cool. All weapons are given a power rating and you add that power rating to your attack you only get to apply the best power you've got available, so there is no double dipping. Your skill score similarly divides into maximum skill and present skill, with the former remaining fixed and the latter changing more frequently. Tracking both your starting and your current stat is something I've considered doing in a future project, and I'm curious to see whether this adds anything in practice. My feeling is it actually opens up some very intriguing design spaces. For instance, there's a lot of times in fighting fantasy books where it might make more sense to roll a bunch of dice and compare the total to your original stamina than your current stamina. There's, there's definitely something in there, so I'll be watching this one quite carefully. Your maximum skill is determined by rolling 1d6 and subtracting the score from 10. Skill checks consist of simply comparing your present skill with a difficulty number. If your skill is equal or over the difficulty number, then you succeed. It's uh, There's no dice involved. And I like this too, uh, not just because I've literally posted a piece on my Patreon blog recently about the problem of variance. And the idea of having fixed values determining success or failure is interesting to me and a, I think, sensible bit of design. Strength is determined by rolling 3d6 and subtracting the result from 33. Uh, your maximum strength can rise above its starting value but it is capped at 30. If your present strength drops to zero it is game over and strength tests work the same as skill checks. 
You can restore strength with food, and there's a neat mechanic whereby you can search for food almost anywhere, but it costs you time, which is another resource in the game we'll get to in a minute. Depleting one resource to raise another is a great way of injecting tension into your game. Fortune is determined by rolling 2d6 and subtracting the result from 13. It works the same as skill and strength checks, but your present fortune can also be influenced by the loss of time. If the gamebook tells you to deduct a time unit, you also lose a point of fortune. Unlike in fighting fantasy, a fortune check doesn't result in a loss of fortune, which I think is probably another good design decision. I think always losing a point of luck for every luck test in a fighting fantasy book is one of the, the weaker elements of that system. Your time is randomly determined at the start of your adventure and represents the variable amount of time you've got to complete the adventure before your automatic teleport system activates to bring you home. I like time mechanics in general, but randomly generating a range between 0, 4 and 49, that creates an amount of variance I'm not especially comfortable with. It remains to be seen whether a score of 4 will let you have much of an adventure. I'd rather have a set amount of time for each attempt on the book. Um, but interestingly, rather than using dice, you have two pages of random numbers to point a pencil at. And this does at least allow the author to control the range of random numbers in such a way that higher numbers are more common. So some thought has gone into trying to balance this out. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if there's any indication that low time adventures actually work. Uh, time pressures are fun but notoriously tricky to actually implement and I'm looking forward to examining this one. Uh, there's a mechanic whereby vehicles essentially allow you to ignore some time penalties which is a nice touch. There's a combat system, it's very simple, there's a straight 50-50 roll to determine who wins each round followed by a comparison of attack scores. If the attacker has a higher attack score they deal damage equal to the difference between the attack scores plus one. So a difference of zero if you've got equal attack scores will still cause a single point of damage. If the attacker has a lower attack score they do a flat one point of damage. Damage is deducted from the loser's strength score and I think this should make for rapid fights if there's a disparity between the two fighters but I suspect it'll take a long time if they're closely matched. Uh, if you imagine two fighters with equal attack scores and 30 strength each that's going to take about 60 rounds of combat to resolve. That's only a problem if you actually come across such a chunky opponent. Of course, if the author keeps enemy stats under control, the combat system should, I think, work very well in practice. I would say there's an argument for not needing the 50-50 roll. You could simply have the fighters take turns to knock lumps off each other, maybe randomising a little bit the amount of damage that's done, and then you would wind up at more or less the same point but rolling dice is fun and it can create a few surprises so i don't actually have a problem with the system as it stands you start the game with a spacesuit with six extra large pockets it can also provide for your nutritional needs there's a mechanic with items whereby their names via a substitution cipher can be converted into a paragraph number you can turn to in order to see if the item is useful in your current situation which is a neat way around everything needing to have numbers stenciled on them but it will make for a little bit of additional bookkeeping. I've rolled up a character the text informs me that the character's name is Jiral Aqual which is spelt with two Q's two L's and no U which makes for a fairly heroic name. 
I'm scoring it a 6 out of 10 on the heroic name scale. It's fairly heroic, but it's no dandelion imprecate or botch saliva. Jiral uh, Akol has the following stats. Attack 5, skill 7, strength 22, fortune 7, and 29 time units available. With all the rules explained, let's dive into Interstellar Terror. I'm not going to read out the background section, it's pretty long and I want to focus the episode on the interactive bits since the book is such a hefty tome, so I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. You're a scientist on a planet called Terra, which is similar to Earth but exists in a different dimension. You've recently developed a whole bunch of different inventions and discovered a new planet which may be capable of supporting life. You've got your nifty spacesuit, which acts like a tiny spaceship and can support your life functions for extended periods. You've also created some nanomachines that you can secretly insert into people to monitor their thoughts. The text doesn't really flag this as a grotesque invasion of privacy, which is a little bit of a problem because it is a grotesque invasion of privacy, but it's not clear whether we're a good person or a bad person in this story, so I'll reserve judgement on that until the end. You've also come up with a teleporter that will enable you to transport yourself to the new planet without any pesky space travel getting in the way. Also your spacesuit can turn you invisible and project holograms, so you're pretty well kitted out at the start of this adventure. There's a lot of scientific information presented about the new planet, which you have dubbed Black Sphere, and that ties in nicely with your character being motivated by scientific curiosity. It comes across as a deeply weird and hostile world, very much unlike most alien planets you see in TV science fiction shows. In this lengthy opening section you set the coordinates and teleport yourself to the surface of the planet, but something goes wrong, and instead of materialising on the surface you appear in mid-air above a world very different from the dark planet you were expecting to explore. You fall into a lake surrounded by high cliffs. We get some intriguing descriptions of the unusual planet on which you've landed. There appears to be a white-grey dome completely covering the sky, and your suit suggests that you've somehow landed inside the planet of Black Sphere, putting us potentially in Hollow Earth territory, which is exciting. I love Hollow Earth stories. You remove your spacesuit and prepare to explore this odd new world. You find a forest of unusual trees and begin to walk along its edge. So we'll pick up with the closing paragraphs of the introduction. You walk close to the edge of the forest along a narrow stretch in the shore with the shimmering lake surface on your left-hand side. You find that you cannot create any deep shade. Even when you cup your hands over your eyes, the light inside their enclosure remains about half as strong as that outside. And when you try and do the same thing in the forest, it makes no difference to the light level at all. Stepping out of the forest, you stand for a minute with your back to the trees and gaze across the lake. Then your body jolts as something sharp thuds hard into your back. The magnificent scenery fades from view. And there is a little picture of the lake and the cliffs with the trees and the strange sky with the luminescence in the distance. 
I should say that the author has done all of these illustrations himself. Again, I don't think the author's a professional illustrator, but he's done a bang-up job of creating simple images that convey a good sense of the environment that you're in. Um, better than I would almost certainly manage. My gamebooks don't have any illustrations because I'm not good at that sort of thing. So yeah, big kudos for providing illustrations. So section one, are you waking from a dream? Upon the borders of your senses there stand indistinct, blended impressions of your surroundings. Then, across these borders they begin to creep, separating into definite identities, taking the forms of hard surfaces, cool air which carries a tangy scent, and strange, faint, melodious sounds from above. Your eyes open to speckled vision, and through a stream of gentle white light, Three concurrent lines emerge, dividing your narrow circular field of view into sectors. Slowly, as your view widens and your vision clears, you realise that these lines are the junctures of two walls and a ceiling, and that you are sat on a hard floor, your back wedged into a corner of a large, white-walled room. Your mind is almost total confusion. How did you end up in here? As you swing your tired and heavy-lidded gaze around, you see that there are several metallic yellow doors in this cubic and windowless room. Then, glancing at the glistening white sheen of the floor, you spy a small sheathed knife, a compass, and a pair of black leather boots lying in front of you. You are not yet able to remember what you had been doing before you lost consciousness, but you are feeling an urge to put on the boots because the floor is rather cold. The boots are comfortable and welcome, for you only had the thin material of your undersuit shoes covering your feet. The knife and compass are small enough to fit into two pockets of your undersuit clothing, so you decide to take them too. The knife has one point of power and adds one point to your starting attack score, giving you a present attack of six. Let's note that down. In another pocket you find your anti-sleep capsules, which you always carry with you. You decide to take one straight away because you are feeling fatigued, but at the moment it has limited effect, so you begin to suspect you have been heavily sedated by somebody. At the moment, however, you cannot fathom why anyone would have done so, and you cannot yet recall the events by which the drugging must have been achieved. Once the effects of any sedatives have worn off, however, each of your anti-sleep capsules will keep you awake without tiredness. For 24 hours, you have many months of supply. In the next moment you realise, with alarm, that your spacesuit is gone. But then you recall leaving it behind a strange tree in a weird lakeside forest. You remember that, although the spacesuit is essential for exposure to space and for travel to atmospherically hostile or airless worlds, it is not needed to teleport you home because the teleporter dematerialises you before beaming you along a short wormhole and into your teleportation room. Wormholes, you recall, are shortcuts that bypass the huge expanses of space. They are virtually instant portals to other worlds or even nearby locations. You have managed to generate and to use these wormholes to travel in a way that no one else yet has. The wormholes can even take you between different locations on the same planet. Yes, all your memories are flooding back now. The wormholes bring doorstep and destination together. No need to cross space. 
we should say that the last one, two, three, four, five sentences have ended with an exclamation mark. I don't have a problem with this as a stylistic choice, but I will say that in general, when you're writing, the more exclamation marks you use, the less impact they actually have. And by the time you've used five in a row, the last one might as well be a full stop. But although you have mislaid your spacesuit and the portable communicator, which you had been holding as you walked along that dazzling green shore, you at least still have your locating chip. This chip is securely implanted under the surface of your skin so that your teleportation equipment is able to pinpoint your exact position. It will beam you back to Terra when you instruct it via the communicator in your spacesuit, or, as is the case now, if you have become parted from your suit and your portable communicator. It automatically transports you home when a preset time is up. You had placed the portable communicator in a pocket as you entered the forest, but unlike your anti-sleep capsules, it has gone. Without the spacesuit or the handheld communicator, you are not able to send messages to your teleporter, and so, in this case, you have no control over when you will be beamed home because you have not yet developed the means to mentally transmit signals, as well as receive them via your nanotransmitters. So you cannot send any mental messages back through a wormhole in order to override the time setting that you made before commencing your journey. This is because you are not yet able to put both transmitters and receivers in your brain together, as they would interfere with each other, rendering both types of machine utterly useless. You will simply have to wait for the preset time to be counted down to zero. Suddenly, however, a much bigger worry hits your mind as you think about those erroneous coordinates. What if other components of your transport system have also failed? What if the beam-back time facility is not working? If so, then whatever this place is, you might be stranded here forever. Rising laboriously to your feet, still feeling groggy and strangely heavy, your thinking rather muddled for someone of your mental acuity, you now recall that thump in your back while you were standing on the lake shore. It felt like you had been darted. Yes, you were drugged. Someone had been stalking you. Surely that landscape could not have been a dream or hallucination. You did fall into the lake and swim to the shore, but you recall how dreamlike everything was. With the unnaturally vivid hues, everything seemed to glow in an oniric blaze of colour. Now, see, that's a nice turn of phrase. A glow in an oniric blaze of colour. I like that. The light emanating from the softly loosened white walls of this room, however, is not the same, for when you cup your hands over your eyes, the shadow inside the cup is deep. The air in here, aside from its tangy taste, has, on breathing, the feel and quality of Terran air, very unlike the air you breathed at that dreamy lake. So that landscape really must have been a dream. In which case you could not have been drugged there, the erroneous coordinates that were going to kill you by sending you deep into the crust of that interstellar planet must have changed, delivering you to this indoor location instead. So where are you? This is an artificial environment, so you cannot be on your newly discovered frozen interstellar planet. If not on Terra, perhaps you're on planet Alphoi of the fourth orbit. That is the only other populated planet in your solar system, and this room might be a part of an underground residence. 
the kind of property that the majority of citizens on that airless planet reside in. You call out loudly in case someone is within earshot, but there is no response to your voice, and so you quieten down and decide to try opening one of the exits from this strange room. As you saw earlier, there is a plain metallic yellow door in the middle of the room's north wall, and a similarly coloured trapdoor near the centre of the floor next to a large striped green and black circular feature which juts slightly proud of the floor. The two metre diameter disc has the word lift printed on it, and it also has two large red buttons on top, one with an upward arrow on its side and the other with a down arrow. There is also a round yellow ceiling hatch directly above the lift. Lift? That word is printed in your language. So this is unlikely to be Alfoy because only a tiny minority of the Alfoyan people use your particular Terran language. You now feel almost certain that you have been rematerialized somewhere within your own country on planet Terra. It seems clear then that you have been dreaming or hallucinating about the lake and the blue trunk forest. But whether you materialized in this room or were subsequently found and brought here, which seems more likely, you are unsure. But someone has removed and taken off your spacesuit. You did not take it off yourself. You must have only dreamed or imagined that you did. If you are on terror, you don't want to wait for your teleporter to return you home from within your own country because before you commenced your journey, you programmed it to transport you back there automatically after 120 hours, just in case there was a loss of communication. You're not prepared to wait around for five days for that to happen and it might take even longer than that if it's malfunctioning, or perhaps not work at all. You must get out of here and find your spacesuit, or else use the nearest public communicator to make a call to your driverless car to come and pick you up, which, as it appears that you are much closer to home than you initially thought, should not take long to get here. First of all, however, you must find a way out of the building, and on the way, hopefully retrieve your spacesuit from whoever has possession of it. So... You've got a set of options, the door in the north wall, the trap door, or the lift to the ceiling hatch. In terms of the writing of the introduction, I'm going to say it's actually not too bad. There are, there are probably too many uses of exclamation marks and italics for me to be entirely comfortable with it, but it does create a specific style which is very consistent, which is nice. And I think the author's got some very nice turns of phrase. It would definitely benefit from having been a bit shorter. It covers an awful lot of ground to end up with you're trapped in a room, which is sort of the most interesting bit. And everything else could maybe have done with a lighter touch. I didn't dislike any of it, so it's fine. In terms of escaping from this room, though, what shall I try and do? I personally really dislike lifts. I'm not exactly claustrophobic. I just prefer to be moving under my own impetus wherever possible. So I think I'm going to try the door in the north wall. The yellow metal door opens onto an arched passageway lined with glowing green square tiles. The passage runs directly north for about 20 metres. Halfway along, there are two doors facing each other. They are made of green stone, and there also stands a sturdy-looking metal-banded wooden door at the north end of the passage. You call out to see if anyone can hear you now, but there is still no response. You are just considering which way to go when the west door swings open, 
you are surprised and shocked to see a huge black sphere about five feet high, bristling with sucker cups, squeeze through the doorway and roll itself clumsily along the passage towards you, while the west door slams shut again behind it. Every one of the creature's suckers contains a ring of sharp, silvery teeth, each ring circling the entrance to a dark and slimy throat. As it rolls nearer to you, its suckers stretch towards your body, with the intention of sucking your flesh into the ring of teeth. You try to nip back through the door behind you, but it has locked. This black ball is very slow moving, but it is blocking the passageway, and you'll have to deal with it. So you stab at it with your knife. The black sucker ball has an attack of one and a strength of nine. Also been very nicely described. Got a really good mental image of what this thing looks like. The core descriptive writing is really clear, really easy to parse. Very nicely done. So, uh, yeah, with this black sucker ball of attack one and strength nine, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Black Sucker Ball. It reduced my strength by 1 to 21. The last thrust of your knife punctures the body of the crazy Black Sucker Ball. As a greenish fluid seeps out of it and drains through the floor, the ball crumples and flattens. Suddenly, a man's voice echoes between the tiled surfaces. His tone is cold, steely and abrasive. Welcome, my guest. I hope you have enjoyed your encounter with this creature, one of my many interesting beasties. The little sucker might not have been difficult to defeat, but things will change as you continue your wander through my premises. You will need a top-notch weapon to give you the best chance of survival here, in my fiendish creation, in my vast globular oubliette. Fear grips you as you listen to this hard, acerbic voice. You cannot understand why all this is happening, and you demand to be released from this crazy place. The owner of the voice ignores your demand and simply talks over you. There are no easy ways out here, and you might well die trying to find one. But if you can pass the tests I'm about to give you, I'll allow you a better chance of getting out of here alive by providing that first-class weapon. The first test will be conducted right here in this corridor. A collection of 13 green tiles on the east wall of the passageway turns red, forming a large number 8. And then the voice continues, What quantity would you take away from this number to make the number 13? You may only give one answer. If you have the answer, add the number 13 to it, then square the result and turn to the segment in the book with the same number. If you do not have an answer, or turn to a nonsensical segment through giving the wrong answer, or if you do not wish to answer, lose one present fortune point and turn onwards. So there's a nice little picture of the corridor. Again, it's very simple, but it really does convey exactly what's going on, which is nice. So we've got a little puzzle. Okay, so I... I'm not good at maths, but I do remember that if you subtract a negative number from a positive number, you're effectively adding a positive number, which would give us uh, 13 minus 8 
is 5, so minus 5. Then we add 13 to give 8, and then we square 8. 8 eighths of 64, which is correct. Hooray! You give your answer, and the voice replies, that is one of the correct answers, and although I prefer a different answer, my favourite one that is, I will provide you with a superior weapon as promised. A green tile near to the giant red figure eight opens in the wall like a small door, and the void beyond contains a laser sword. Take it, commands the voice. Do you wish to take the weapon? I surely do. I've been looking forward to having a laser sword since this began. You pick up the laser sword and activate it. A rather short sword-bladed beam emerges from the handle. This laser sword has a power of two points, so it adds two points to your present laser attack. Now add your present laser attack score to your starting attack score, and you have a present attack score of seven. I do indeed. Excellent. Your little knife has been superseded, but you might still decide to keep it. The steely voice resonates in the passageway again. Do not be tempted to vandalise my dungeon with this weapon, it warns. You can now try the west, the east, the north, or the south door. Well, I think we will go west as if we're facing north, and I'm going to turn to face north, then the west is the closest thing to being able to turn left. So yeah, let's go west. I'm intrigued that there's another better answer to that puzzle. Presumably there's another solution for people who weren't in the bottom set of their school's maths class. Uh, although I did still achieve a B at GCSE, thanks in no small part to an incredibly conscientious teacher. This stone door opens into a small room which is grey rock-walled and windowless and lit by red flame torches in sconces. The concrete floor is full of scattered items, but the only ones that are worth taking are a jar of honey, a bottle of water, and these together count as one meal, which will give you three points on your present strength score when you consume them. A metal box of scintillate matches. That's a cool term. You also get a flashlight, a hacksaw, and a large watertight anti-grav backpack. Within this backpack, you can carry as many things as you find, up to a limit of 25 items. None of the other jumbled junk in this room seems of any possible use, and the only way out of here, at least as far as you can detect, is by the way you came in, but you can add two points to your present fortune score for finding these items. Excellent. So... Unfortunately, I've just lost some audio, but I've written down all the items on my character sheet and I've taken the east door from the crossroads. So we'll pick up again from there. This green stone door has a repeated series of symbols plus X minus carved into it. The symbols are arranged around a circular symbol zero. The door opens into a circular concrete windowless room with a high domed ceiling. The room is lit by flaring white flame torches in sconces and is entirely empty. There is only one grey stone door on its eastern side which is heavily carved with alien looking life forms. 
some of which resemble those you just saw after your teleportation. Then, from a dark slot in the floor at the centre of the room, a transparent glass screen rises. A line of black numbers, which ends in three question marks, appears in the glass as shown immediately below. And the numbers are 1, 3, 9, 5, 10, 60, 53. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Below the numbers, the screen reads as follows. The eastern door is locked. To pass through it, you must succeed at several trials. First, you must work out which three numbers should replace the three question marks in this in this cyclic calculation problem by studying the first seven numbers. Having done this, you must then add up all eight of the individual digits in the last three numbers and then speak your answer. When you've added the numerals together, turn to the segment in the book with the same number as the result. If you are correct, and if you also have a laser sword, it shall be switched up to a higher power by remote controller. If the text in the segment number you calculate makes no sense, or you cannot do it, or you refuse to take this test, then we turn to a different paragraph. So, uh, number puzzles. Now, I have no talent for maths, and I don't know what a cyclic calculation problem is. I don't know if that's a real thing, or if that's a thing the author has made up for the science fiction aspect of this story. It could be either, as far as I'm concerned, and if there are any mathematicians listening, I'm guessing I sound like a complete idiot here. However, I'm going to do my very best to try and work out what's going on with this number puzzle. Okay, I've been staring at these numbers for some considerable time. I've even done a few Google searches. Whatever is going on with it, I don't I don't have even the beginning of an inkling. And actually, that's fine. The author was kind enough to note when he emailed me over a copy of this book that he suspected I'd probably struggle with the number puzzles. He was not wrong. So, we'll just we'll just let that one go, I think, and I might um, I might ask a mathematician later to see whether they've got any ideas. So I'm going to sulkily refuse to give an answer to the question. The glass screen shoots back into the slot and at the same moment a huge hole yawns beneath your feet. You fall a short distance through a trapdoor and down a dark, narrow, brick-walled shaft, at the bottom of which you land on a soft mattress inside a barred metal cage. Before you can stand up, you hear a deafening clang coming from above your head as a lid of steel bars hinges down and locks, trapping you in the cage. The cage is tall enough for you to stand upright, but one side is missing. In its place is a black stone door. You turn around and see that you are at the end of a dimly lit brick-lined railway tunnel, which slopes upwards from this point and then splits into two, which winds away out of sight. Your wheeled semi-enclosure sits on the rails and fits the tunnel snugly so you can't walk around it or climb over it. You consider trying to push the barred vehicle along to the junction where it is wide enough to get past the cage, but discover that the brakes are on and you can't find a way to release them. If you have a laser sword or a hacksaw, you can try to cut through the bars to escape the tunnel. If you have suction pads, you could use them to climb up the sides of the red brick shaft 
and then try to open the trap door through which you fell. Do you want to cut the bars? The only other option is to open the black door. So I don't have the suction pads. I think I'm going to try and cut the bars with the hacksaw. That feels like a bit of lateral thinking. Your efforts are immediately cut short. Vandalism will not be tolerated are the last words you hear before you fall dead. By what means you were killed, you will never know. So we've learned something um, from that death, which is that the demonic entity that's tormenting us in this maze really wants us to approach it in the spirit with which he's designed it. So I think it's a bit early to call a halt there. So I'm going to invoke the Sausage Finger bookmark rule and go back to the previous paragraph. So we can try the black door. Upon opening the black stone door, you are met by a bewildering array of reflections of yourself. Along with your images, there are also a great many bright lights, which are in fact multiple reflections of an arc lamp situated somewhere either in or beyond the maze of mirrors that you are entering. Every surface ahead of you is a mirror, and even the back of the stone door is reflective. There is also a faint buzzing noise produced by the arc lamp, but the sound reaches your ears from all directions with equal volume, so you cannot judge the direction of the lamp. You are not sure you want to enter this mirror maze, but there is no other option unless you have the means to cut through the bars of the cage. Otherwise, you step over the threshold and the heavy door closes and locks behind you. Then a creepy, robotic voice begins to taunt, Welcome to my maze of mirrors. You are now in a very difficult situation. If your body or any other solid object, even paper, touches a wall mirror with even the slightest pressure, it will trigger explosives, killing you instantly. You only have five minutes to escape from the maze or you will be blown to smithereens anyway. I do hope you get out in time if only so that I won't have to rebuild my mirror maze after the bomb damage. You begin to sweat with fear, but then you grasp the idea of breathing onto each possible wall mirror around you in an attempt to distinguish mirror from void. But unfortunately, the temperature of the glass is too high for any condensation to form, and you dare not try to feel for the mirrors for fear of an explosion. There is, however, a very faint breath of warm air flowing through these reflective corridors. You can just about feel it on your skin. If you possess any item that you think will aid your escape, then turn to the segment of the, the letters of its name add up to. If you have no item, you will simply have to take a chance to find the exit unaided before your five minutes is up. So, uh, what items do we have? We've got some scintillate matches. We've got a flashlight. I guess we will try scintillate matches. So I now need to add up all of the letters in scintillate matches. <gasps> Success, I think. The box of scintillate matches would be useful to start a fire and create smoke, which would be then carried through the maze by the gentle currents of air. You could then follow the smoke to the exit. Tiny metal box of matches alone will not produce enough smoke, but if you have any tissue paper, you can decide to set light to it. I don't have any tissue paper. Okay, so we go 
back. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. I felt so pleased at spotting that that was a uh, possibility. I wonder whether the flashlight can help me. Okay, the flashlight is no help. So, uh, it's a shame. Could the compass maybe help? No. Anyway, I've used up. I'm only supposed to have two guesses. So, um, oh, that's a shame. That is a shame. So, I guess we'll just have to try and gamble and see what happens. The mirror maze is not very large, but this is still a very risky venture. And you will need to check your fortune nine times for the nine switches in direction the passage in the mazes make before you reach the exit. To do this, you must roll two dice nine times and subtract each of the nine pairs of numbers shown on the dice in turn from your present fortune score. These subtractions do not alter your present fortune score. They are only done for the purpose of the fortune checks. So if all nine of your results are either the zeros or positive numbers, then by pure chance you've managed to traverse the maze of mirrors without touching a wall. Nine random checks. My fortune is currently nine, so let's have a little look. We get one passed, two passed, three equal, four passed, five passed, six passed, Seven past eight past last one I roll a two and a five makes seven. Amazingly, I have in fact passed all nine. That is pretty cool. So we make our way onwards. Oh I wonder where those tissues are. I'm curious about that now. By nine enormous strokes of luck. You make it to the open mirror maze exit. From here you can see, fixed to the wall, in the long white tiled corridor behind you, the open style arc lamp that is lighting the maze so brilliantly. Once again the robotic voice speaks. Well done. For your success in negotiating the mirror maze, they shall add power to any laser sword you possess. You receive a two-point power upgrade to a laser sword. Add these two points to your present laser attack score. So... Laser attack now four, giving us a present attack of nine. It's going well. Admittedly more by absurd good fortune and good judgment, but hey. Oh, and this uh, section has a T next to it, which means I have to deduct a time unit, reducing my time to 28 from 29. It occurs to me that there is potentially a good argument for saying once you've actually found some food and drink to simply try and wait out the as far as you know 120 hours but I imagine the designer of this maniacal maze would probably take issue with you choosing not to participate and would come up with some means or other to incentivize you to continue getting through their maze of death. I know if I designed a maze of death and someone decided they just weren't going to play ball, I would be kind of on the intercom going, hey, you know how this is a maze of death, right? If you don't play it, I might just kill you anyway. At the end of the long straight corridor far beyond the abundant light, you can just make out the base of a flight of stone stairs leading up, so you proceed along the corridor to climb the steps. 
Behind you, the arc lamp is suddenly extinguished, but light coming through a frosted glass pane in a metal door at the top of the steps guides your way. As you step onto the landing, this door opens automatically onto your first view of the outside world for quite a while, and this place definitely does not look like any place on Terra. You can add two points to both your maximum fortune and present fortune scores for having escaped from the underground dungeon. Oh wow, that was quick. That was a very swift escape. Immediately you notice something very strange. Air which is starting to flow in through the doorway is flaring up very brightly and is flooding the dim interior behind you with its light. But this air rapidly loses its intense glow as it is blown down the roof of the stairway, fading away into the murky depths of the tunnel. It looks as though the air in the underground complex is sucking the light out of this external air. Looking outside again, you can see that the white sky is still marked apparently by the same dark band you saw when you stood on that bright green lake shore. It is a long bruise in the sky's otherwise flawless purity. However, this mottled ribbon is now hugging the northern horizon and is half hidden beyond it. The dazzling strip of light that lay to the north of the dark band is not visible at all. Perhaps this is because you are now further south than you were at the lake. The scene before you appears timeless, seemingly held forever in overcast yet vibrantly colourful daylight. There are no shadows at all in this region due to the lack of brighter light from the north. It is now clear to you that this world was not a dream or a hallucination. You must have been captured and deliberately placed in the dungeon. The land is real. It wasn't your mind playing tricks on you. Yet everything here is so strange. If this is the planet Onidarius and not just an undiscovered corner of terror, then few features of your home world find parallels. So that's pleasing. We are actually on an alien planet after all, making the nicely written but extensive background section actually mean something, which is good. The doorway through which you are emerging is set into an earthy bank, covered in slightly alien-looking grass-like plants, which are short and orangey-brown. Here and there, other doorways are set into various banks and hillocks. Probably these doors are other exits or entrances of the dungeon. You are standing in a vast, five-sided clearing within a forest of cerulean trees, the likes of which you first met with at the lake. Their abundant greenish-silver foliage flows over the walls of blue formed by their massed trunks. There are a few blue-trunk trees scattered about the clearing, and one of them is close at hand. You stand directly beneath it and look up into its black branches, which spread outwards from the top of the trunk, and which gradually transition along their length into the flat, tapering, grass-like blades of the foliage. The edge of the leaf blades are also hung with those jewel-like yellow berries, just as the ones on the trees around the lake were. Much of the ground in this cleared region is blanketed in short red moss-like growth, broken here and there by thick tufts of the orange and brown grassy plants, along with clumps of stripy black and white stemmed brushwood. As yet you can see no signs of animal life, but you can hear a great variety of faint animal-like sounds coming from the distant forest. There is also a road system within the clearing. It consists of straight jet-black highways, and these five roads radiate out 
from a polygonal roundabout which is situated in the middle of the clearing. The roads spread out between the smattered groups of trees and then bury themselves in the forest. At the centre of the roundabout island stands a large, round, bizarre-looking building. This construct has been assembled out of a ring of truncated trees left in situ where they grew. Sections of their black branches have been fitted horizontally, filling the gaps between the building's blue trunk pillars. Its conical roof consists of branches covered with many layers of the waterproof green-silver leaf blades. This property is surrounded by a magnificent colourful garden which fills the remainder of the roundabout island. It is stocked with exotic otherworldly plants. So do we want to explore the entire clearing, investigate the building, examine one of the trees, climb a tree to obtain a good view of the surrounding landscape, or leave the clearing by road? Or, if you're worried that you might be stalked, drugged and captured again, you might wish to melt quickly into the forest to hide yourself. So, quite a range of options there, which I like. Um, there's an art to creating options in different types of spaces, and I think, even though this is a lot, they all make sense, and I would consider doing any or all of them. Of these, I'm going to investigate the building, I reckon. Sounds kind of intriguing. Sounds a bit sort of Enid Blyton-esque somehow as well. So raising the slender but real possibility we might run into Noddy or Big Ears. Fingers crossed, it's a dwarf. We do love to meet a dwarf. The approach to this trunk-pillared edifice is very colourful. A red moss garden path leads from the northern apex of the pentagonal roundabout and cuts its way through a great assortment of plants. It then bridges several ponds and passes a few bluish-green wooden sculptures before ending abruptly at a wall of horizontal black branches in the building which contains no apparent means of entry. The conical roof of the structure is also built of branches which are overlaid by many layers of the tough greenish-silver leaves to keep out the weather. There are oval-panelled and diamond-paned windows but they are filled with a one-way glass and you cannot see into the premises. As you are about to take a walk around this 25-metre diameter building, a section of the branches in the wall at the end of the garden path begins to rise, creating an entry point. Maybe you've been spotted. A slim, tall and roughly human-like being emerges from the opening, carrying a green fibrous bag in each hand. It is dressed in simple clothes made of colourful plant fibres, it gives you an anxious smile as it cautiously approaches, and then it speaks in a rich and sonorous voice. Greetings, visitor, it welcomes. I am Zibaro of the Wisk people. I have not seen you before. Are you a new and worthy human servant of Sirar, or are you a common human escapee of the devil's underworld? If you have been sent here by Sirrah, then how may I be of service to that great lord of all creation? You are amazed that it can speak your language, and it explains that it has been learning your human tongue by conversing with God and his metal angels. Intriguing hint there. Learning the language was essential due to its need for communication with the creator Sirrah, god of all worlds. You tell it that you have not been sent here by a god, and then you describe your escape from the dungeon. Ah, yes, the netherworld, it exclaims when you have finished. 
That is where God sends sinners. It turns out that the Netherworld is Zibaro's name for the dungeon. I don't know of this god, you return, and then you attempt to explain how you got here and that you are a scientist. I thought I'd been beamed into the dungeon by error, but later I remembered being hit by something, presumably a drug dart, and so captured, you conclude with a sigh. Images of your exhausting ordeal still racing through your mind. Having listened to your account, it stares at you in amazement and cries, But you sound like a great and decent type. Why would you have been thrown into the dungeon? It is not knowing of science, and so it treats you as though you are yet another god and you are hard-pressed to convince it that you are just a mortal being. You press it for information. Zibaro tells you that Sirar descended from the sky in a divine vessel, announcing to everyone that he was god and that he overlooks and takes care of everything and everyone. The great Sirar created this world long before he created us, and he rules over all, continues your humanesque host. When you inquire as to who created the dungeon, however, it replies, The devil! The devil takes in wrongdoers from this world and also from God's other, more sinful worlds that lie far beyond our skies. Zibaro now approaches a nearby patch of sandy pea-green earth and removes an exotic-looking plant from one of the bags it is carrying. It soon finishes its planting and then invites you within to see its craftwork. Will you accept its invitation or decline? I will accept its invitation, I think. So, people with advanced technology pretending to be gods? Uh, that's a classic science fiction concept. Crossing the threshold of the property, your vision is stunned by the interior. The roof is supported by a central six-metre-tall trunk of fluted azure, and wood from small young trees has been carved into all sorts of highly intricate works of art and pieces of furniture such as tables and chairs. The wood-like substance is not quite like any timber on terra. It has very few as well as very sporadic growth rings because... The seasons here are controlled only by fluctuations in heat from extensive volcanic activity which goes on far away from here. Warm periods are often very long but are also unpredictable in duration. The timber is a rich mine of green and blue shades and there are plenty of fine wooden sculptures placed around the perimeter of the huge living room. Many of the chairbacks have large central holes whose perimeters are surrounded by smaller worm-like holes and many tabletops have similar holes which have been plugged with pieces of crystal or wood. Several chairs are set around a glittering green metal table whose structure is highly convoluted. It sounds very nice, this dwelling. Rustic yet artistic? Hmm. I wonder if they take holiday bookings. A door leading from this large living space stands ajar, and through the gap you can see a workshop crammed with all sorts of tools plus a few wooden sculptures. The windows of the property exist only for looking outwards onto the garden because, of course, in this world, such apertures are not necessary for letting in light. The light on this world is very strange. On the windowsills stand large cylindrical pieces of carved, transparent and, in some cases, tinted glassy material, decorated with arrangements of transparent tubes and lengths of vine-like tendrils. The crystal cylinders 
look about the right diameter to fill in the holes of the chair backs and the table tops. Your host now offers you some recent windfall yellow berries and a beverage of juice squeezed from similar berries, which, if you accept, gain you five present strength points. Four points for the berries, one point for the juice. Didn't need to specify that, but I thank you. Oh, if you don't wish to consume them now, you can store the berries in a backpack or an empty pocket. So I think I'll drink the juice for one and save the berries. I apologise, it was perfectly reasonable to specify the strength of both. So the uh, juice returns my strength to 22. And there's a picture of the dwelling. Once again, it is in many ways rudimentary, but it does do a fine job of giving you a strong indication of what it actually looks like. This is really inspiring me to think that I might try and do a few pictures for my game book that I'm currently working on, on the basis that actually it turns out even very simple pictures do add quite a lot, provided you focus on making sure that the picture actually represents accurately the environment. So that's cool. Add two points to your present fortune score because you now know that at least one sort of food is edible. And you might be able to gather yellow berries for further meals if you find any fallen ones. However, we'll take time to gather enough berries and so you'll have to deduct one time unit for each meal of berries you gather. Each of these fruity meals is worth four present strength points. So there is that tension between time and food. Okay, so... Fortune back up to nine as well. That's good. You now discuss Zibaro's home and garden and at least a Terran hour goes by as you chat. Then suddenly there is a powerful surge of air outside. The gale is blowing from the southeast and the garden plants dance chaotically while the wooden building creaks and shakes. Over the course of a few minutes this wind gradually slows down and stops. Then it begins to blow in the opposite direction, accelerating and reaching a similar velocity as before. Gradually, it dies away again. The process repeats several times, ever more weakly. That's something else very strange about this world. The weather. Zibaro, seeing your puzzled expression, tells you that these weird dual blasts are caused by space devils attacking the world from their evil black abyss, which lies above Sirar's sky shield. The abyss is said to twinkle with a million glints from the wicked, beady eyes of the ever-watching space devils. There's some great world-building in this. Yet, thanks to God's creation of that protective shield, the space devil attacks are foiled. Even their most concerted assaults are unable to penetrate the barrier to rain total destruction upon the world. This is making me really curious to find out what's going on. You take Zibaro's words as a kind of religious or superstitious nonsense. While he is talking, the ever-weakening pairs of winds blow back and forth until the air is stilled, save for the gentle prevailing breeze from the south. Zibaro asks you if, whilst you were in the netherworld, you met with any musicians. You reply accordingly, and then Whisk informs you that its former musician friends, the finest musicians of this world, sinned against Sirar by refusing to play for him. They refused to repay God for the musical gifts he had granted them, so they were handed over to the chief devil of this underworld. And ever since, they have had to play for him instead, locked away forever beneath the ground. You are determined to find out more about who runs the dungeon, 
So you thank this whisk person for offering you refreshments, and it offers you its hand to shake a Terran custom, and a very strong indication of previous human contact. With this skin-to-skin -skin contact, you seize the opportunity to administer a dose of microscopic transmitters. Then you decide to leave and await the information. Okay, this is genuinely problematic. There's no way of dressing it up. This is genuinely problematic. You had an opportunity there to attempt to seek informed consent from the person whose brain you are about to pillage. A person who seems to be very friendly and very helpful who's provided hospitality, you don't take that option. Instead, you secretly implant them with microscopic transmitters designed to rummage around in their brain and then transmit the information to your own mind. That is just deeply problematic. And if you want your characters to be sympathetic, maybe consider whether having them non-consensually steal people's thoughts is a look you really want them to have. I was prepared to give it the benefit of the doubt early doors because I wanted to see how it played in practice and it plays in practice in a very problematic way. As you are walking back along the garden path the transmitters are starting to deliver. The Whisk's mind merges with your own and knowledge flows from out of Zibaro's memory banks as follows. Sirar descended upon this world from the sky, proclaiming himself as God who created all worlds. Zibaro is in favour with Sirar and is treated better than most other Whisks, firstly because of its unswerving obedience to him and secondly because of its exceptional woodworking and crystal carving skills natural abilities which Zibaro believes are actually gifts from this god. So Zibaro repays god, Sirar, for these gifts by working for him. Sirar possesses many of the Wisk's works, and because Sirar is so kind, he also allows Zibaro to live here in this home built by his mechanoids and slaves. Zibaro lives under the protection of this god and his metallic angels. So Zibaro, profiting from slave labour, not exactly a good thing either, but two wrongs don't make a right. Zibaro lives under the protection of this god and his metal angels, and they remotely protect him from any danger by use of the covert laser guns which are stationed at many points around the clearing and the property. Zibaro cannot pray to his god, however, for god does not seem to listen, only to watch from outside the garden. Zibaro's mind is a mixture of confused and conflicting perceptions, at first, it does not give you any clue about whether this deity and his angels are actually real beings, which the Whisk believes to be divine, or whether they are pure imagination. You cannot see yourself in Zibaro's visual memory, though, so this Whisk was certainly not involved in your capture and incarceration. The culprit or culprits are still unknown. Zibaro has never seen inside the dungeon and does not know what the devil looks like. Now you see visions of Sirar and immediately you retrieve all memories of him as though you are Zibaro himself. Sirar appears to be a Terran human and has a look of great power and confidence upon his countenance. He is dressed to emphasise this. In fact, you might have glimpsed his cruelly twisted visage earlier via brain transmissions from other aliens. In Zibaro's memory, Sirar is telling you of his divinity 
and that he created this world and you. He is offering you a place in heaven in your afterlife in return for your obedience to him and for supplying him with works of art. And then you recall another visual memory of Sirar seen through a window of your property. God was stood at a dungeon entrance. He was accompanied by a large group of heavily armed silvery humanoid robots which were holding human captives, sinners, and taking them into the underworld or netherworld while Sirar oversaw the operation. Of course, you know that gods are just an intervention of unenlightened mind, and that this Sirar is only seen as a god because of his technological superiority over the natives of the world, all of which are likely living in fear of being rounded up and taken down by the devil, should they refuse to do God's bidding. You begin to think the devil probably does not exist, that the dungeons are designed and run by Sirar alone. What frustrates you, though, is although Zibaro has heard that Sirar lives upon a plateau of ice, he does not know the direction. However, you can add two present fortune points for gaining some knowledge. While this information has been flowing into your mind, you have closed the distance to the roundabout. You can now leave the pentagonal clearing via one of the roads, search the rest of the clearing, or examine a tree. I think we're probably done here. So uh, let's leave the clearing via one of the roads. So I've got to remove another time unit down to 26 time units and down to a fortune of nine. Climbing the crest of a hill within the clearing, you look down on the selection of five roads which radiate out from the pentagonal roundabout. A road leads in a straight line from one end of every side of the pentagon, and each of these highways cuts through the blue polygonal fence of trunks which bounds the clearing. These cyanic chasm-like slices stretch on for as far as you can see through the woods, but there is no signage to tell you where the roads lead. You are facing the north apex of the pentagon roundabout according to your compass. The roads lead off in the direction of northeast, southeast, southwest, west and northwest. So west is the only one that's a proper cardinal compass point. So on a pure whim, I'm going to choose that one. Following this road takes you directly westwards into the forest. Over the ensuing miles it travels flat and arrow straight. Then it twists madly to avoid irregularly shaped lakes. It also climbs steep hills and traverses a number of similarly steep valleys, although the route avoids most of the severe inclines. There are a number of large clearings where trees have been felled or killed by disease. These breaks contain other strange-looking plants that appear a little like giant bamboo with alternating black and white ribs around their stems. Several small creatures, each about two feet long from nose to tail, dart across the road in front of you and scurry up and down the trees. These furry animals are bright red and slightly squirrel-like with bushy tails. They also have black chevron markings along their flanks. Pink and yellow zigzagged beetle-like creatures whose way of travel resembles that of Terran air jetters are propelling themselves pneumatically across the roads at high speeds. They are tiny and yet very noisy. They tumble along chaotically as they blast themselves forward with powerful jets of air squirted from the backs of their carapaces. It does feel like a very alien world, this, which is something I like very much. Further along the highway, you encounter a great many transparent moth-like flyers which sometimes land on your skin. 
and even further along you come across a lengthy wet stretch of road where it appears to have been raining. Here, spilling onto the road from a roadside clearing, come small, wingless, fly-bodied crawlers with grey and black-striped furry bodies. They are being chased by large, frog-bodied creatures which are orange and translucent, and which are stabbing at the wingless flies with razor-sharp beaks, beaks which form the entire frontage of their heads. Almost an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, I mean, some of these descriptions feel slightly redundant on top of the other descriptions that are being provided. Sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. Sometimes what you want to do is just pull out one element of your surroundings and focus on that to highlight the alien quality of the landscape. And that can really convey as much as doing the same thing several times. You soon pass beyond the wet section of road, but then heavy rain begins to fall. The sky has not been darkened by the cloud, however. In fact, it is even brighter than before. The raindrops are very warm, almost hot, and you can see the water steaming slightly. And looking up, you make out several white fluffy fireballs of rain cloud against the lesser luminosity of the chalky white sky. You suspect that some kind of biological or chemical activity inside the rain clouds is either producing or somehow intensifying the luminosity of the air within the clouds by generating heat, or perhaps the water vapour is focusing extra light into your eyes. But the clouds are the brightest on their north sides and so are probably lit by the northern light strip that you saw shortly after your botched teleportation. After what feels like several Terran days of travel, the landscape to the north of the road becomes almost devoid of trees. It is a landscape built from lumpen hills of a light grey rock. By now you've lost one point of strength if you are on foot. I am on foot. Interesting that I don't have to be though. So strength now 21. The rain eventually stops. A little further west, the road takes a sudden and very steep downhill shift. As you go downhill, the thinly distributed trees draw back a little from the roadsides and the rocky land becomes beige. You are surprised to see a huge corkscrew shaft which winds vertically into the rock. Just before the corkscrew, another road leaves this highway and continues westward up the side of a broad and gentler hill. As you approach the strange spiralling road, you discover, not very far from the corkscrew hole, a straight and vertical shaft which plummets to a great depth. At the bottom of this shaft you can just about make out what appears to be a number of containers which are scattered about as though they have been dumped in the shaft. Do you want to follow the road down the corkscrew, continue west, or return east up the steep hill? Well long have I been recording? I've been recording a while, actually. I think we are going to pause the recording at this intriguing juncture. Uh, I think I'll probably follow the road down the corkscrew and see where that takes me. But I don't want to spoil too much of this adventure, because after all, this is a book that is available for purchase. So I'm going to go away and continue this strange, surreal and somewhat intriguing adventure off mic. I think it's going to take me a while because there's like 900 paragraphs. So I'm going to go and get started on that. 
I'll be back for you in just a few moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. So I have played Interstellar Terror through to completion and the headline is I basically enjoyed it a lot. In terms of digging into it and offering some constructive feedback, let's start with the writing. I would say that the writing is both good and bad. There's elements that I like a lot, but there's also some things that would probably have been flagged by a professional editor. And these include overuse of exclamation marks and overuse of italics, as well as the capitalization of many phrases. And I'm of two minds with this. On the one hand, it's something that does stick out and feels a little clumsy. But on the other hand, it does create a distinctive authorial voice, a tone of breathless wonder that would likely be excised by cleaning up all of the idiosyncrasies of the prose. Using emphasis sparingly is one of those canards of good writing, quote unquote. But actually, you can break these rules as much as you like, so long as you're doing it thoughtfully and for a reason. If you look at Alan Moore's script for Watchmen, you'll quickly notice that he uses a lot of emphasis in the dialogue. Sometimes every other word in his script is in capital letters. In the finished comic, the dialogue is all in capitals, and the emphasis is provided by rendering the emphasised words in bold. Now, that's clearly not good writing, but it works in practice, providing a sense of rhythm to the dialogue. Moore probably gets away with it because there's no adverbs in most comics, so his emphasis isn't competing with other textual markers to indicate how the characters are speaking. The art is doing the heavy lifting, providing clues as to the emotional state of the person speaking, but you don't always want the art to be exaggerating every small emotion, so the liberal use of emphasis in the speech bubbles is another tool to convey meaning. And in the case of Watchmen, it gets more interesting because Rorschach, the sinister character, is notable in his speech that it doesn't have any words rendered in bold. And this provides a contrast to the more expressive speech of the people around him and emphasises that he speaks in this uncanny, flat monotone. And that contrast is made all the more powerful, even if you aren't consciously aware of it because the rest of the characters use emphasis so frequently. So there are no hard and fast rules for good writing, only guidelines which you can throw out whenever you like. In some ways, Interstellar Terror's writing style feels like a throwback to the 19th century, where authors and publishers tended to be more generous with their use of punctuation and typeface effects. You can see this parodied in George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman books, which are written in a fairly modern style, consistent with Harry Flashman looking back on his long life from the early years of the 20th century. However, the letters from his wife that he receives while on campaign are written in a pastiche of emotionally charged mid-19th century prose, complete with a liberal use of capital letters to indicate emphasis. So style is only conventions which readers feel comfortable with, and while I do think the prose in Interstellar Terror could be tightened up, I don't think the end result as it stands is necessarily unpleasing to read. It's unusual, it's idiosyncratic, but it's not unpleasant. It's also quite nice to read out loud because it's always very clear which bit of the sentence I need to hit. 
so good for the old podcasts. I do think there would be some value in condensing and editing the prose down to fewer words. This is something I've only recently become aware of as a key component of good gamebook design, and it's an area where looking back my own work could have been much stronger. I hadn't consciously realised that one of the things that differentiates a gamebook from a novel is the expectation that you'll be reading many sections multiple times, and long paragraphs can make this feel like a chore on subsequent playthroughs when you just want to get to the decision so that you can make a different decision than you did last time. So even if your prose is really, really sharp, and I hope my own prose is at least adequate, the player may start to resent wading through dense paragraphs which could have been cut down to a couple of clear sentences. That's something I'm going to try and really focus on with the book I'm currently working on. Tightly written and concise prose is the order of the day. And some paragraphs in Interstellar Terra do feel like a slog. The background in particular is a lengthy introduction which could, I think, quite profitably have been boiled down to fewer well-judged words. Now, admittedly, doing that would have reduced the scope for the scientific information that's provided, but I think it's often going to be better to regret leaving things out than leaving things in. And the writing is by no means bad. The author's prose is clear and easy to understand. He's able to describe a scene in ways that bring it to life, and he makes use of a wide lexicon to prevent the descriptions from becoming stale or repetitive. There are some lovely turns of phrase in the text, and he's got a very clear image of what the strange world looks like and how its peculiar physical properties impact on the protagonist. There's plenty to like about the book in this respect, even if the overall effect feels a little odd at times and a bit stilted relatively frequently. But I like that kind of host of scientific detail, like the business with the alien trees having fewer growth rings than Terran trees due to the specifics of the climate. I really enjoy details like that, and here they're engagingly mixed with absolute pulp science fiction nonsense in a way that reminds me a bit of some of Frank Herbert's early books before he landed on Dune. I really enjoyed the light bulb moment that occurred when I realised that the light in the strange world works as it does because it's a function of the atmosphere that's something so completely different, so completely novel to me, that discovering that just felt so pleasing. And that attention to a degree of scientific plausibility is something that I've not experienced in any other science fiction game book I've read. So kudos definitely due there. In terms of the design of the book, I think the encounter design is interesting. And again, there's some elements that I like. There's some elements that don't land so well. There's a huge variety to the encounters. As an exercise in imagination, there is a fantastic amount going on here, and that is great. Lots of the encounters are very memorable as well, which helps with subsequent playthroughs. The surreal tone makes it feel somewhat dreamlike, though, and that almost Alice in Wonderland vibe can make it hard to intuitively grasp what might be the best way to proceed. It's still much more fun than being presented with orc after orc though. Despite having science fiction trappings, this feels structurally more like an old school dungeon adventure with you 
trapped in an underground lair by an unseen foe who is conjuring up all manner of bizarre challenges for reasons that remain, even at the end of the book, a little bit hard to fathom. And I enjoy that sense of mystery. I enjoy that sense that the bad guy is insane and isn't operating according to the usual rules of logic. But it does make it a little bit tricky to grasp the shape of the adventure. One system I really like is the food foraging system. Having to find out what's edible before you can then forage for it is a great mechanic. Tying it into the time mechanic is also great. There's a small issue with you being able to forage for food that probably doesn't exist in your surroundings, but that's just an example of the trade-off that comes when you externalise mechanics outside the text. It's the same trade-off you get with being able to eat anywhere in a fighting fantasy book. It's functionally impossible to write these rules in such a way that they don't throw up odd situations like being able to eat 10 meals at a single sitting and then effectively fight a bear. On the other hand, if you only specify when you can eat or forage in the text, there will always be points at which the reader will think, well, I could have a forage now, or I could sit down and eat a meal now, and the text isn't allowing me to do that. So it's a trade-off, and there's no good answer to the conundrum. It's basically a function of abstracting reality. And the same issues tend to occur in tabletop role-playing games and video games as well. And you just need to look at whether or not it works in general and not worry too much about the edge cases that will always show up. And in general, the foraging system works well here. I also like the secret code whereby you can experiment with items to see if they might help you in a given situation by doing the letter substitution cipher. Secret codes are always fun, even if they're simple. And although it's a bit time consuming, Happily, there's plenty of web apps out there that can easily turn text into a series of numbers, which makes the process much, much easier. And I love the idea of the text not needing to specify exactly which items might be helpful in every given situation, because that gives you a sense of agency when you suddenly think of an item that might work. It's a fun design because it liberates you from text prompts and makes working out what might be useful in a given situation feel more tense and more involved. There was at least one puzzle using the text cipher, uh, a room where you needed to change both the ceiling and the floor in order to progress, where I was able to come up with the hidden option without too much difficulty, and it felt amazing. It's a tricky thing to get right, but when it works, it works extremely well. I struggled with some of the puzzles and did fine on others, which suggests to me that the author has got the balance about right, at least for someone of my intellectual capabilities. There's a real inventiveness on display in both the formal puzzles and in the challenging situations. I love the bit where you can use the matches to create smoke so that you can find your way through the maze. That kind of lateral thinking is something I very much enjoy. Some of the puzzles have multiple answers, and that's also cool. It's very good design to try and make sure that you've covered all the bases when you're doing this kind of thing. Puzzles are one area where you can actually 
do your playtesting isolated from the gamebook as a whole. And I would say that doing that is almost certainly a good idea because putting the puzzles in front of actual humans and asking what they would do, you can take that information and then build it into the options that you provide the player so that they're fair and representative. The puzzles being fair helps balance out the fact that a lot of them feel like instant death options. This is quite a deadly game book, and as always, I don't have too much of an issue with that. The deaths are varied and interesting, and as a deeply morbid man, I take a perverse enjoyment from dying repeatedly in game books. Your mileage may vary. There's a slight weirdness in some of the encounters that have a profusion of options to consider that really got me thinking about how you go about creating choices in a game book. You want to convey a feeling of agency, and on the face of it, providing more options for the player will do precisely that. By giving them freedom to act, you theoretically move closer towards emulating a tabletop role-playing experience, yet there is a paradox at the heart of all human choice, and it's something that bears closer examination. We have in our own lives the freedom to do almost anything, yet we rarely take advantage of that freedom. There are an infinite number of ways to cross a road, yet the majority of us will look both ways and then walk or run across during the first break in the traffic. If there's no traffic at all, we could, if we wished, perform a series of cartwheels or hop backwards across the road. We have absolute freedom, and yet in practice, we act in ways that seem entirely predictable. And this is a function of a number of psychological effects, but there are two I want to draw attention to here. The first is the concept of affordance. This idea states in one of its forms that as part of our perception process, certain configurations of input indicate something about themselves and this acts to constrain or to suggest the ways in which we might interact with them. You can describe this constraint or suggestion by looking at the difference between a sandwich and a bowl of soup. You eat them in different ways and part of that is because something about their appearance suggests how you should go about interacting with them. A sandwich is telling you that it wants to be picked up with the hand. A bowl of soup is telling you that it wants to be eaten with a spoon. Understanding the affordances of items can help you design encounters with a simple and clean design. A button has a significant affordance that is telling you to press it. If you provide a bunch of other options of ways to interact with the button, say levering it off the console or spraying it with acid, you're providing more choice, but you're doing so in a way that potentially goes against the affordances of the object. Buttons are begging to be pressed, and remembering that can be key. Similarly, another psychological effect is that of schemas, which again, in a simplistic form, are essentially little scripts, little shortcuts that the brain uses to decode and simplify our interactions with the world. There's all kinds of different schemas. So some of them might involve other people. When someone says, hi, how are you? In England, most people will respond, fine, thanks. How about you? Even if they aren't fine at all. There is a script for the interaction that is more important than telling the literal truth. I think I would struggle to respond to a question asking how I am honestly, even if I was on fire. Can't complain, I'd say, through gritted teeth as my face melted off. 
schema of one reason why we don't cartwheel across roads. We've got a script for crossing the road. It works perfectly well. We don't deviate from it without good reason. Now, these two phenomena, along with sundry other effects, combine to make choices in the real world much more constrained than people would like to think. People are surprisingly predictable, and a gamebook designer can use this to their advantage. In general, the more stressful the situation, the less choices you can get away with offering. In a gamebook, the classic example is a monster appearing and giving you a choice of fighting or running away. It's your classic fight or flight reflex rendered in text, and it always works. It always feels right. Now, you might want to sprinkle in a third option, the use of an item, for example, but if you start giving the player tons of options in this situation, it will end up detracting from the drama. If you've written it well, the appearance of a scary monster will give the reader an actual jolt of adrenaline and they will want to make a decision quickly because they're experiencing a very mild and hopefully pleasant tingle of anxiety from imagining themselves in that situation. If you then ask them to weigh up a series of eight options, all that adrenaline will drain away as they start to methodically consider which might be the best one. Now, there are situations where giving someone plenty of options is fine. The classic example is exploring a room. You describe various intriguing articles of furniture, and then you let the player rummage through them in whatever order they like. And this is fine because it's a low-stress environment, and the player might have the reasonable expectation that they can rummage through all the available bits of furniture before they leave the room. They might, of course, suspect that one or more choices will turn out to be a bad idea, because this is a gamebook after all, but they can take their time to consider all the available options. Urban areas tend to benefit from this approach as well, because urban areas are the most complex environments that we generally deal with as human beings. Even then, I would argue that you want to exercise restraint as much as possible. It's better to have two choices which both lead somewhere interesting than nine choices of which only three matter. So there is that delicate balancing act to be done. And even in an urban environment, if you're on some kind of quest, the actual number of places you might want to go in a sprawling metropolis may actually be very small. If you arrive late at night, it's reasonable that the player might want to go and find somewhere to sleep as a first significant action, and you don't actually need to give very many choices at all because the story is constraining them. What I'm basically saying is that we can think about psychology in quite a detailed way in order to inform gamebook design. And if you base your choices on the affordances of the environment and on the kind of things that people will most often do, you can create a very powerful sense of agency with only the simplest decision trees. And this has the added advantage of making subsequent playthroughs easier because you're not having to grind your way through eight different options on eight different playthroughs. Now structurally, Interstellar Terror is fairly complex and there are a number of different possible solutions. If you aren't worried about the combat rules, you can blunder your way towards the end quite happily. There's a loose three-act structure with the dungeon forming Act 1, the outside world, Act 2, and a final confrontation forming the final act. And I'm a big fan of 
books where you can take multiple different approaches and have quite different experiences on different playthroughs. And that is something that I think Interstellar Terror does extremely well. It provides an enormous amount of content for you to dive into and explore. There's just lots going on and that is awesome. There are some slight structural oddities along the way. There's a room from which you can obtain a frankly obscene number of useful items which feels very unusual for someone like me who's conditioned to expect to have to ferret about in all sorts of obscure places for different items. I was um, pleased to note that there is a path, albeit a very narrow path, which will enable you to complete the book even if you wind up with the minimum possible amount of time. And that attention to structural detail is hugely appreciated. Yeah, a genuine moment of delight when I realised that you could get all the way to the end without time becoming a significant factor. That's very clever. In terms of the systems, they all work perfectly adequately. There's some slight weirdness with all three stats being generated in slightly different ways, which makes remembering what your maximum stats are a little bit challenging. But otherwise, the skill checks all function fine. The combat system has some issues with balance when you get two fighters with broadly similar stats. There's at least one big fight that took me forever. My second death was at the hands of a creature that had 39 strength and a similar attack score to me and resolving it was a real slog. It's interesting to me how different systems work better with different challenges. I think most role-playing systems struggle with two tanky fighters going up against each other because that always ends up being quite a slow battle of attrition. And if it's a problem with Interstellar Terror, it's a problem with Dungeons and Dragons too. A couple of fighters with low armor class and tons of hit points can be knocking lumps off each other for what feels like weeks. It's a pervasive problem with so many role-playing systems, so I'm not calling it out as a failure of design here. It's just part and parcel of the systems we use. There's probably some useful house rules that could be used to take the edge off. I think one simple solution when everyone's more or less the same is to have um, accelerating damage so that everyone's damage output increases round on round so that even if nothing happens, which is going to be kind of frequent it raises the possibility of something happening on subsequent turns the author to his credit presents a number of ways to make combat go faster there's lots of opportunities to add to your present skill lots of weapons and items you can use and even some that will make combat more or less trivial added to which the entire combat system is optional which is always a good move there is some scope for tightening the systems I think having three stats generated in exactly the same way is better than having three stats all generated in slightly different ways. But, I mean, that's proper nitpicking. Everything that's presented works as intended, and that's nice. In summary, this feels like what it is an amateur work. That brings with it both positive and negative for me. The joy of amateur creativity is that you don't have an editor telling you that you should do this or you shouldn't do this. You can create something which is truly representative of yourself, and that is amazing. The downside is that editors can often make very helpful suggestions and encourage you to polish your work, and you lose that by creating alone. I don't think this is a book that would be professionally published in its current form. 
It's a weighty tome that marches unapologetically to its own beat and it has its own peculiar power. There's nothing exactly like it in the world of adventure game books and that should be celebrated. It's also a good science fiction book which should be celebrated enormously. Is it a bit rough around the edges? Definitely. There's some very odd stylistic quirks and one genuinely upsetting plot point but my own work is also rough around the edges and I'm sure there's some odd things in there that I haven't noticed. Regardless, I had a lot of fun with this book and that is partly down to the unique voice and the occasionally idiosyncratic way the author has of writing. I do hope in this review I've managed to strike a balance between constructive criticism and my natural enthusiasm for creativity. If you're someone listening who has written their own adventure game book, I would love to feature it on the podcast and I will try to be both honest and give feedback and also supportive of your work because I just love reading things written by people who are outside the mainstream of publishing. Like I got absolutely obsessed with Henry Darger for a bit. Um, look him up if you haven't heard of him. He's a very strange man. If you're someone who is thinking about writing a game book, I hope this might inspire you to get started. It shows just how much you can accomplish if you just apply yourself. If you've got something that you've written and you're not ready to show the world, but you would like some feedback on it, then do feel free to contact me. The email address is, as always, hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. I will be very happy to look at anything, to be honest, anyone's written and give feedback. I'm just some bloke with a podcast, but if I can help anyone create anything, then I'm always happy to do that. Regardless, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next regular episode of Fantastic Fights, in which we'll be looking at Vault of the Vampire, which, as a horror book, should make me very happy. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.